Welcome to Ogle of Lanagus. Conversations in Irish mythology. With the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson. And Isolde O'Gollaghan Carmody. Please go to storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories and much more. We do this for the love of it. If you'd like to help out by making a donation through the website, feel free. Series 6, Circling the Toy. Episode 4. Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. The Boyhood Deeds of Cúchulain. What manner of man, asked Adil, is this hound of whom we have heard among the Ulstermen? Is he so formidable, asked Maeve? More so than any one of them, answered Fergus. You will not encounter a warrior harder to deal with, nor a spear point sharper or keener or quicker, nor a hero fiercer, nor a raven more voracious, nor one of his age to equal a third of his valour, nor a lion more savage, nor a shelter in battle, not a sledgehammer for smiting, not a protector in fighting or doom of hosts, not one better able to check a great army. You will not find there any man equal to Cahulun in growth, in dress, in fearsomeness, in speech, in splendour, in voice, appearance, in power and harshness, in feats, in valour, in striking power, in rage and anger, in victory and in doom-dealing and in violence, in stalking, in sureness of aim and in game-killing, in swiftness and boldness and rage, with the feet of nine men on every spear-point. Oh, I care little for that, said Maeve. He has but one body. He suffers wounding. He's not beyond capture. Moreover, he's only the age of a grown girl, and as yet his manly deeds have not developed. Oh, no, said Fergus, for even when he was but a child, his deeds were those of a man. Now, in the last episode, we looked at some remarkable births within the Toyn tradition. And the final one we examined was the birth of Cahullin himself. Now, that was a strange birth. It was indeed. We told that story in full in the last episode, The Birth Pangs of Ulster. But he has this amazing triple conception. And perhaps we can summarise that as follows. The first conception was an other world only. Both the parents are from and in the other world. But that child dies. The second conception is between a rather determined uh, otherworld <laughs> worm, but also includes this dream annunciation or impregnation motif. Now, that child is aborted. Deliberately. Very, very deliberately and, and quite horrifically. Finally, there's an all-human conception and impregnation. Sort of normal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what you might expect from a human being. That child thrives. It is a complex story. Uh, but I was thinking it might be worth reprising this story through a later 16th century manuscript. Yes. Now, this is a version that comes from Egerton 1782, um, which is a manuscript that was written about 1517. A lot of the material in it, though, very often agrees with both the Yellow Book of Lecan and Leverin the Hudra, the Book of the Dun Cow, which has a lot of our mm-hmm. oldest threads. In Egerton, um, the conception of Cúchulain is entitled Feshtiga Bechfultig, which means the feast or the staying overnight at the house of Bechfulta. It's interesting, I think, to see which which features of the story continue. Yeah. You know, to, to see in both oral and literary survivals as such. Yeah. Now, 
Firstly, Declina and her 50 maidens in this version have now been lost to the temporal world. Yeah. They've, been, they've disappeared and nobody knows where they are. Mm. But they now seem to have an, another world status. In fact, they're the white birds that threaten Ulster at the start of the earlier version. So they themselves are coming back as birds mm. and threatening the land by eating everything. Yeah. And I think this is very significant. I think it is. I mean, whenever we find these flocks of birds, they're very often white birds, you know that there's some kind of a meeting between the worlds. And they're joined with silver chains yes, often, aren't they? exactly. And that really tells you that these are not just your ordinary mm. birds. And we did talk about this last time because the earlier version starts with this bird plague on Ulster. But this... Egerton version also shows a real knowledge of that earlier version. There are phrases that come mm. wholesale from one to the next. And one of those is this phrase that hunting was a custom with hunting the Ulstermen. Birds, the hunting yeah. of birds was a custom with the Ulstermen. That seems to have survived. So that must be important. It still needs to be explained, I think. In because both there's versions. a feeling that it was a gesh, that it yeah. shouldn't have happened and yet it was a custom with Exactly. Them. Yeah. So it's still significant mm. even in this late version. Definitely. Now, Brickrew's still there. Oh, yeah. And he seems to have a, a similar role. Now, this time, he finds the house with the women in it. Yes. But he chooses to conceal the fact that he's actually found the king's sister. And he thinks it would be better for him if he just says, hey, I've found this company of beautiful women. How about coming to have a look? Yeah. Yes. And he is still there as that sharp-tongued mm -hmm. troublemaker. And this role is very much strengthened, I think, in the later version. Just to comment that as well in this version, Dechtera is given as Concover's sister and not his daughter. Of but course, still, I forgot to say that. That's all right. But that they're still that closely mm. related. But Brickrew is deliberately withholding some rather important information. He's offering his king this company of beautiful women. He knows that Concover is going to want to have sex with at least one of them, but he conceals that one of those women is the king's sister, is mm. this, and is the very person they've gone out here to find. And because she's the chief of the women, yeah, Concover demands his right to sleep with her. Yeah. Now, Fergus, poor Fergus, I know. he's always the one who has to do all the dirty jobs. Yeah, yeah. Fergus goes to fetch her, but she's giving a respite. She's given a respite. And she's just about to give birth. Yes. So you've got this same motive. Yeah, absolutely. Now, poor old Fergus, like you say, being given the dirty jobs, what he's acting on is this dwatted seigneur that Concover has. And this yeah. comes into some of Concover's birth stories, I think, in the Scala Concover. It does say that he would... He had the right to sleep with every newly married woman before her husband slept with her, uh, which makes you wonder what Brickrew's really up to. Mm. And so Dectora has this respite, but she does sleep beside Concover. And in the morning, the woman is gone, but there's a baby boy found wrapped in the folds of Concover's cloak. Mm. Well, Concover gives the child to Finn Coive to foster, and she's drawn to the child because he reminds her of her own son, Connell. Yeah. And it's only then that Brickrew does actually confess that he knows that this mysterious woman was the king's own sister. And, of course, Finn Coive is another sister. So we've got this child who is closely related to Colonel Kernock as well. Well, the story goes on to say that the strange otherworld man who was with the women in the house when Brickrew found them was, in fact, Lou. And that this child, of course, is Shadenther. Is our Shadenther. So it is... A somewhat simpler version, there's only one conception and one birth, but there have been some interesting developments as time goes it's on. It's given a more fairy tale form, mm. an actual incest. 
I suppose, is just about averted. <laughs> Although I still think it may have formed a, an accepted part of the original story. Yeah, it seems to be so unavoidable that I'm not sure it actually was avoided. I think that detail where it says that the child is found in the folds of Concover's cloak, that's really heavily implying that the child is Concover's mm. or that Concover's being pointed out as the father. Yeah, that element of the story is extremely persistent. Mm. Uh, but then, well, I mean, after all, Cahullan is a, is a recognisable hero figure. Yes, he certainly is. Patterns concerning the eponymous hero have always fascinated story explorers well, for centuries. And so many people have tried to create lists of marker points to identify exemplars of the hero's life. You know, there was... Lord Raglan and loads of others in the 18th century mm. and Joseph Campbell is probably the best known in the 20th for Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yes, on, on which very famously the Star Wars stories are based. <laughs> well, these lists, I love them and they're useful. Yeah. And I've always enjoyed them, but you don't, they're not gospel. No. There, there's so much more to it than mm. that. Mm. I also think it works the other way round. Mm. Perhaps your important tribal ancestor or culture hero, well, must be remarkable in every way and gradually accrues more and more exaggerated features, including uh, the regular filching of other heroes' stories. <laughs> yes, yeah. So features like Born of Incest mm. may at times become less or more marvellous mm. and may be improbably less acceptable. Absolutely, yeah. Now, nevertheless, just taking one of the 19th century lists, I think it's the Lord Raglan list, mm. he points out that frequently, one, a hero's mother is a royal virgin. Mm -hmm. Two, his father is a king and often a near relative of his mother. Three, the circumstances of his conception are unusual. Mm -hmm. Four, he's reputed to be the son of a god. Mm -hmm. Five, a father, grandfather or other relative may seek to, seek to destroy him. Now, he would have been looking at classical sources. Yeah. He wouldn't have been looking at the Irish. Oh, no, nobody ever but did. nevertheless, it's an interesting list. It is. And what I find interesting is that, for one thing, Colonel Kernock fits a lot of that list very, very well. It well doesn't... We said before, yeah. Colonel Kernak actually deserves to be one of these great heroes. He really does. I mean, we don't have that thing about being reputed to be son of a god, but then the status of god in early Irish tradition well, is... it's not god, it's... Yeah, a, a mythical being or another a world. son of another world being yeah. is where we, we'd look at it. I exactly. mean, in other words, he has a strong other world element. Yes, yeah. And Conal Kernak also has the worm motif, which exactly. is a good sign, and yes. several others. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's very interesting but also that while Cuchulain does follow an awful lot of these it's not his father or grandfather or uncle who seeks to kill him that's Conor Kernock yeah no Cuchulain it's his mother who actually tries to prevent the birth from happening and that is different early version and that is different and significant yeah but nevertheless, like many a remarkable hero, Cahullan grows faster and stronger and is far more advanced than any child of his age, any yes. normal child. Yes. Now, I know every mother says that. Yes. <laughs> but it has to be extravagantly true mm. if you're talking about your own local culture hero. Oh, yes, as we will see. Now, there are a few texts that we have which refer to Cahullan's boyhood deeds. The ones that we're drawing from are the ones that are known as Recension 1 and Recension 2 of the Toynbo Cúlnia itself. So these stories come within, if you like, the main body mm -hmm. of the Toyn text. Now Recension 1 is drawn from the Leverne the Hudra, the Book of the Dun Cow, which is a book that was created before 1106 CE, and the Yellow Book of Lecan, which is a late 14th century 
uh, manuscript. Recension 2 of the time is mostly taken from the Book of Leinster, mm -hmm. LL. Now, the language of Recension 1 ranges in date from about 550 to 1100 CE. So that goes back Quite really early. very early. It's mm. some of the earliest narrative that we have, in fact. Now, the Book of Leinster was created between 1100 and 1135. But as we know with manuscripts very often, they draw on earlier sources. So in all these cases, we have this mix of Old and Middle Irish mm. in the text mm. that we're drawn from. So we're dealing with quite early material. Yes, some of it goes back mm. really an awfully long way. It's some of the oldest literature that we have in Irish. Well, let's begin with the account of a hurley match that Cahullan played at the age of five. Yes. This is from Recension 2, isn't it? Is it is, from the um, LL Book of Leinster version. Now, it's Fergus McRoy who is narrating Cúchulain's oh, history. Poor Fergus Poor again. Fergus. Yes, now he's telling Maeve and Alil about this wondrous hound, as we heard in the opening. And before we start the story, I mm. keep saying, poor, poor Fergus. Fergus. Maybe we should explain a little bit about why we keep saying this. Yeah. Now... It's quite clear that he's going to need his own episode as we go on because he seems to be very much the point of view character mm. in an awful lot of the stories within the time tradition. He's the one who's watching the tragedy unfold. Yeah. And he's part of the tragedy himself. Exactly. And in stories like this recounting of the boyhood de deeds, the story is told, if you like, in direct speech. It's Fergus mm. speaking in the first person about what it was he saw and experienced. Mm. So he often calls in, in fact, other witnesses. Mm. You know, he says Brickrow over there saw it happening. But the other important context for this is that Fergus and Brickrew and some other of the Ulster warriors are in exile and mm. they are under Maven Alla's protection in Connacht. Yes, yeah. He, well, by the time the toil itself is yeah, happening. Which is when Colin is around 17, 17 years old. Yeah, exactly. And the reason, of course, that Fergus is in exile is because of the help that he gave to Deirdre and Nysha. Poor Fergus. I know, yeah. <laughs> he's really in, in the midst of all this. And this is why I think we're going to have to really give him his own episode. Yeah, which we will have to entitle... Poor Fergus. <laughs> anyway, to get, let's get on with the story. To get back to these boyhood deeds. He tells how Cúchulain was brought up in his parents' house on the plains of Muirthovna, mm -hmm. which is generally given as the Cooley Peninsula or near mm -hmm. the Cooley Peninsula. It's very much on the border between Ulster and Leinster, which becomes important later on. Cúchulain hears about this wonderful mockred that Concover has at Evermacha. Mockred. Now, you might be best to explain what the word we means. Yeah, well, what it literally means is a boy troop or a group of boys. In fact, anyone who is familiar with modern Irish who lives in Ireland might have heard of Macronaferma, mm -hmm. which means, if you like, the boy troop of like the a, farmers. It's a which cadet is the, warrior band, isn't it? Not, not Macronaferma. No, no, I don't mean that. No, but I <laughs> no they're the youth wing of the Irish Farmers Association. Yeah. But yes, the term Macronaferma in the, in the original context is like a sort of cadet band or trainee warriors, yeah, you know, yeah. a group of boys in, in some ways similar to maybe the scouts or boys. Brigade. A little bit more. But that's yeah, thirsty, a little bit more scout. <laughs> yeah, but this is why we're thinking, okay, Mockred is actually the best term for it, but that's what it means within this mm. context. Now, obviously, even though the child is a mere five years old, he's itching to compete with them. Yes. But I like the touch that comes 
next is about how Concover orders his day. Yes. And it says, Concover divides his day into three parts. The first being devoted to watching the muckrad at their sport, especially that of hurling. Mm-hmm. The second to playing of chess and draughts. And the third to pleasurable consuming of meat and drink until drowsiness sets in, which is then promoted by the exertions of minstrels and musicians to induce favourable placidity of mind and disposition. <laughs> That's quite a good life of you. Oh, yeah, it. not bad at all. You can see why people want to be a king. But we have had these nice descriptions before about, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the night was divided into three parts. It's and the quite first common, for eating and the second for drinking and the third for sleeping or whatever. Mm. It's a really nice kind of narrative Sense touch. of order. Yes, yes. And also the sense that things should be done in, in a particular order mm. and at a particular time. Anyhow, Cuchulain's mother, Dechtene, um, who as we found in some versions, is Concover's sister, in others his daughter. She, very understandable, feels that this little shade in the is a bit young and she insists that he should wait for some appropriate adult warrior to accompany him to Evan. And that means one who's in good standing with Concover, of course, and someone who can ensure that the Macrid are bound not to hurt the child. Because he's a bit young. Yes. He really is. a bit <laughs> yeah. small. He's five. <laughs> but equally understandable, it's Cullen's extreme impatience to be away. And all he does is just say, tell me where to tell me where it is where do I go he wants directions yeah she tries to tell him oh it's a weary way from here for between you and it lies Schlieffood yes and now Schlieffood is not just one mountain it seems to be a mountainous region mm-hmm. which yeah it is quite hilly over yeah. that end and of course all the child says is well tell me which way I want to know how to get there yeah. so she gives in and he off he goes but yeah. what could, else can you expect from Cahollan I know he seems to be you can't really argue with him can you he gets his own way whatever yeah so off he goes with his brass hurley and his silver ball and along with his throwing javelin and his toy spear and brass hurley <laughs> now I know several primary schools where they teach hurling mm. but I've never come across a brass hurley no. I don't think it would be effective I'll come to that neither would be a silver ball well no but this is one of these decorative descriptions that they're not really intended as something effective. I mean, this is Cuchulain we're talking about. He's bound to have all the best toys. And as we know, the best of everything is made from precious metals. It doesn't have to be useful when it's that pretty. And we do have that line saying that it's a toy spear. So these seem to be kind of, (laughs) you know, my first hurling kit. (laughs) My first hurling. My first silver ball. My first spear. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Okay. (laughs) But I love the description of how he amuses himself on his long and tedious journey. Mm. And again, I'll have to use a bit from the text because it just describes it so well. He did it thus. With his hurling he would strike the ball and drive it a great distance and then he pelted the hurley after it and drove it as far again then he threw his javelin and lastly the spear which done he would make a playful rush after them pick up the hurley the ball and the javelin while before the spear's tip could touch the earth he caught the missile at the other end yeah (laughs) it's such a great description um it really reminds me of sort of kick the can in a kind know. of a upmarket well yeah exactly sort of way exactly but it's it's the same kind of image you know it really is just a boy who's heading out to play yeah you know you see any number of kids walking down the road just kicking the football running after it and kicking it again you yeah know? it's just it's a very playful image it, yeah it does conjure up a child yes well of course once he arrives he's as impetuous as usual he doesn't introduce himself. No. He just sees the three full fifties. That is the, the the biggest number of boys you can Absolutely. imagine. Absolutely, the compliment. Yes, 
playing hurling and he just barges headlong into the fray, doesn't even bother to introduce himself. Yeah. Now, one of Concover's sons, Fullerwin, is the one who's leading the Mockred, uh, possibly supervising them. And he is seriously unimpressed. Uh, well, mind you, uh, Cahullan demonstrates some fancy footwork. I just have to go yeah. with the description because it's so good. It says, he got the ball between his legs and he held it there, not suffering it to travel higher up in his knees or lower down than his ankle joints. And so making it impossible for the boys to get in a stroke or in any other way to touch the ball. In this manner, he brought it along and sent it home over the goal. <laughs> Fancy footwork or what? Oh, yes, it now, really is. Is it hurling they're talking about? Yeah. I think he may be just keeping the ball on the stick between his feet. Mm. But then what do I know about hurling? And I know even less. But in any way, it is one of these spend it like Beckham kind of descriptions, you mm. know, that he, he's just better at sportsing than any other person. The rest of the boys do stop and stare in astonishment, but they're really not happy about this. Nor is their supervisor, Fullerwin, who demands that they should kill this interloper. Now that seems a bit harsh. Well, what's really going on is that Cuchulain is breaking a gash. The text says it is taboo for anyone to join in the Makrid without first having had the civility to procure guarantee that his life should be respected. Now that's to do with status, isn't it? Demonstrating your status to be, have the right to be involved. Well, it also means, you know, you have to know whose child is this in order to determine whether they should be there or whether they should be escorted off the premises. Well, that's, that's what I mean. Yeah. You have to be high status to yes. join the Yes, oh, definitely. The yeah, absolutely. And after all, if you're talking about fosterage, Concover is being paid for each child he fosters. Mm. So you can't have someone kind of get all the benefits without paying. Yeah. In fact, Fullivan says this doesn't he well what he says is that this boy must be the son of some petty Ulster warrior to have the gold turn up here without any guarantees of safe conduct so he does go to check his identity well you know the thing is that this is just what Colin's mother warned him about yeah she told him that that's why he needed somebody to yeah, introduce him exactly he needed someone to go with him and what mm. they do is they they attack him with their hurdies or they throw balls at his head yes uh, but he Fends off the balls with his fists alone and catches the spears with his shield. And finally, he lays low 50 of the best and chases five, five more right off the field and right in front of where Concover is busy playing fiddle with Fergus. Exactly. And this is part of what Fergus says he sees. Concover seems amused by this rough housing of the boys, but he does grab onto this boy's arm as he runs past and says, Hold, my little fellow, I see this is no gentle game you are playing. And of course, Cullen just stands there and complains at the way he's been received. He just basically says, They started it, don't blame me. Yeah, well, now, Concover does give him the <coughs> explanation that any any newcomer must be introduced and make arrangements that the boys don't hurt him. Uh, Cullen's answer is, Well, nobody told me that. Well, even though his mother very obviously did. But Concover sorts out this oversight the boys agree to let the boy go safe mind you Cullen immediately <laughs> goes out and starts charging around so roughly that it looks as though he's actually knocked out another 50 boys flat and in fact the boys are so terrified of him and obviously a bit sick of all this fighting that they just lie down flat they just play possum on the grass and stay still until he gets bored and goes away and in fact in recension one this incident is entitled the death of the boys well, it's the death of their status yes it? yes and they're all you yeah know, they've been put in their place mm. but i'll tell you what we do have we have the infant teacher's oh, nightmare scenario yeah here. 
can you imagine the new five-year-old in the playground with minimal socialisation experience and far too much confidence? Yeah. Usually it's the sort of child who's been encouraged to really enjoy roughhousing with dad or older brothers, but who's always allowed to win. Yes. And assumes that he can go on doing it in the playground. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have met children. Oh, Not yes. as that bad, but... <laughs> It feels like it at the time. It's recognisable, though, isn't it? It now, really is. Concover is deeply impressed by this behaviour <laughs> and agrees to put this precocious brat under his personal <laughs> protection. I mean, otherwise, there could be some very angry parents coming along and demanding their fosterage fee back. Fergus, as we said earlier, is the one who's telling this story, but he's telling it later when Cucullan is an adult. Well, a sort of adult. No, he's got as far as 17, <laughs> but Fergus does point out that if Cucullan was like that when he was five, it's no wonder that at 17 he is a really dangerous warrior. And that's actually the description I read at the beginning. Exactly. The opening of this episode. Yes, yeah. Now, in that recension one, there is a, a, a similar story about these boyhood deeds as we've just been retelling from the Book of Leinster version. But there are some nice extra details. Yes, it includes a description of perhaps the first example of Cahullan's notoriously weird warp spasm. Yes, and that's worth reading. And it's a very good description mm. of it and very disturbing. <laughs> Thereupon he became distorted. His hair stood on end so that it seemed as if each separate hair on his head had been hammered into it. You would have thought that there was a spark of fire on each single hair. He closed one eye so that it was no wider than the eye of a needle and opened the other until it was as large as the mouth of a mead goblet. He laid bare from his jaw to his ear and opened his mouth rib-wide so that his internal organs were visible. The champion's light rose above his head. Now, this is just weird. It's a, one of the best descriptions it of is. the warp It's, spasm, it's very it? complete. It's sort of turning inside out. Almost. Yes, yeah, and sort of laying bare his innards. There's other descriptions which talk about one eye become, going back so far in his head that a heron could not pluck it out, and the other one becoming so big that it takes up his whole face. It's very gory. There have been lots of attempts to make sense of this, mm, but... Mm. Inevitably, it's just weird. It is, and, and is very particular to Cúchulainn. Often people will make comparisons to the sort of Norse berserkers or yeah, something like that. this is just him. This is really, it is mm. one of the things that is very much Cúchulainn's and very much ours in terms of it's part of Irish literature. Now, there are a few more youthful exploits that are found in Recension 1, but not in other versions. Probably not time to include everything, but let's go on. Let's add a few more. Yes, yeah. some good stories. Absolutely. And we will put up links to the full texts, all the different versions we can find on our website. Now, in this little incident, Fergus relates that when Cúchulainn was a boy, he never slept in Evan. <laughs> and Concover asks him why not. Cucullan replies that he can't sleep unless his head and his feet are level. Well, that's not surprising. It's not. It's not. But what Concover does, strangely, is puts a pillar stone at the head and another at his feet and a special bed is made for Cucullan between these two pillar stones. <laughs> what do you make of that? I really don't know. <laughs> Maybe I mean, there were markers on it. Possible. I think it might be setting up some future event. Yeah, but there's a second part of this story, which is uh, worth relating. Apparently, once when someone went to wake him up, he lashed out and struck the man with his fist on the forehead, which drove the front of his forehead into his brain, <laughs> while with his arms he knocked down the pillar stones. <laughs> I love Fergus's comment. Yeah. From that time on, said Fergus, they never dared wake him up. 
but left him to wake of his own accord. <laughs> and I'm not surprised. No, nor am I. And in fact, my mother used to say that waking my father was a bit like waking Cuchulain. You would only do it with a very long stick. Yeah. <laughs> I've known one or two sleepers like that in my time. Yeah. In, but, but it's more that you can't wake them up at all. Yeah, I'm afraid I fall into that category. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember our famous train clock? Oh, it was awful. It made the noise of a, a, an American-style steam engine. Yeah. Clang, clang, woo, woo. And we'll chaff, 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 clang, woo. And we'll go on indefinitely. It would, yes. I've been in the house when it has been going off and the person it's supposed to wake has failed to wake and yeah, everyone else has driven mad. One of them was either mad. you or my son, Colin. Yeah, and yeah. the two people it was designed to wake, it never worked yep. for. But everyone else, it drove them mad. I think I had two two versions of it. Yeah. And I think both were broken. Yes. <laughs> Eventually. Yeah. Deliberately. I'm not surprised. There's another nice episode, which is in the second recension, Book of Leinster uh, version. This time, the story is told by Concover's son, Cormac Conlungus, and he seems to be another one of the Ulstermen who's in exile. And this is a famous story about the killing of Colin's dog. Now, we mentioned that in the last episode, but it's worth telling in more detail, I think. It is, yeah. In the Book of Leinster version, the story begins with Colin the Smith inviting Concover to a grand feast. There's a bit of detail about how because Cullen isn't a wealthy landlord, his wealth only comes from his craft, so mm-hmm. he can't invite too many people, so he asks Concover only to bring his bestest friends. Before Concover sets out by donning his light travelling garb... It's nice, that. Yeah, with his small company, he sees a scuffle between the child Shadenda and the Mockrud. But Concover is impressed by Yeah, he, he, he kind of likes this young brat. <laughs> and in fact, he says, I congratulate the land into which this little boy has come. Uh, if his full-grown deeds prove as good as his boyish exploits, he'll indeed be of some solid use. Yes, and you have to wonder whether that's what Concover's playing out here trying to create a weapon for him to wield. Well, he then invites the child to accompany him to the Smith's feast, but as usual, Cahullan has got his own plans. I can't go now, says the boy. Well, why not, <laughs> says Concover. I haven't finished my game yet. Leave me alone. I'm not, I don't want to go. Not now. Yeah. It's a typical childhood complaint. What now? Yeah, yeah. Mind you, that reminds me of another family anecdote, if you'll forgive me, that when my brother was very young, uh, he was asked to go to bed. And he goes, I can't go to bed until I have jumped on my pyjamas, which he dutifully went and did then. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we've all met that in children. Not now. Yeah, haven't finished yes. playing. But anyway, the king can cover, doesn't want to wait. And Shadenda says he'll follow on later. He says it'll be easy. He'll just follow the tracks of the horses and chariots and find Cullen's house. But when Concover and his retinue arrive, Cullen checks that everyone is in the house before he unleashes his great guard dog. Concover has forgotten all about this child, the child that's coming later, though. Uh, and Cullen explains, it's only that I've got an excellent guard dog. And when the chain's taken off him, no one can get near for saving myself, he knows nobody and he'll attack anybody and he has the strength of a hundred. Yes. So Concover has just obviously forgotten what he said five minutes ago and says, oh, well, loose him then, let him guard the place. Yep. Concover's done it again. Kind of played a trump card. Oh, now that's your only <laughs> reference. <laughs> made, no further well, he's references. Made, he's made a bad judgment. And broken a promise, putting Mm. the child in danger. Yes, yes. And I think we recognise that syndrome now. But we know what happened next in our story. As Shadenda approaches Cullen's house, 
the giant hound spots him, starts howling and attacks him. But as the dog is charging at Shadender with his jaws open, the child throws his schlitter, his hurling ball, down the dog's throat and then Shadender seizes him by the hind legs and thwacks him against a rock so horribly that he strews the ground with broken fragments of dog. Oh dear, that's horrible. It is a bit disgusting. (laughs) There are other versions of how the dog is killed from Recension 1. Um, No better. No, they're not. The first one says that what Shadenda did was he threw the schlitter, the hurly ball, down the dog's open mouth and that that knocks the dog's brain out the back of its head. But we always have this thing with brains. When anything to do with concover, there's going to be something to do with brains. Yes, yes, Um, brains being knocked out. Yeah, yeah. and it's partly to do with his own death as well. Exactly, There seems to be a connection. But nicely in Recension 1, we have one of those authorial asides where they provide another version. It says, some Mm. say, however... That Shadenda didn't use any weapon, but just wrestles the dog with his bare hands and essentially tears the dog in two in order to kill it. So none of them are better than any others, I don't think. <laughs> Whatever. Come cover. Here's the racket. And then he remembers his promise. <laughs> oh, no, he thinks the child must be dead. And he says to Cullen, oh, it was bad luck that's brought me on this trip. That that boy, my, my sister, sister's son, Shadenda... I, he promised to come after me. He must have been killed by the dog. Yes. So they all rush out. And then what do they see? Only the dog dead and the child alive. And Cullen <laughs> is not terribly impressed by this. Uh, this unnecessary loss of his most valuable and wondrous Little dog. boy, he says. That was a good member of my family. He was a safeguard of flocks and herds. And I quite like this because it reminds me of the Conrechte, the mm. dog judgments or the dog sections, which is a, an early Irish law tract which details the value and indeed the, the honour price of different kinds of dogs depending on what their job is. And when we were looking at this in my master's course, I remember asking Liam, our uh, teacher, if he could figure out what Quasi, my guide dog's honour price would be because of her value in terms of the job that she did and her intelligence and her special breeding. Mm. So this is no small matter. Someone is going to have to pay for the loss of this very valuable member of the household. But that's when Shadenda makes his very well-known arrangement, this promise, that until Cullen has raised a new pup from the same litter to be a new guard dog, Shadenda himself will take the dog's place and guard the stronghold. Now, Cathvad, who's always around, yes. as usual, adds his two pennyworth and announces that the child will take on the name as well as the function of the guard dog. Yes. He will now be known as Cullen's hound. Yes, Coo Cullen, which is just what that means. Which we really shouldn't have been calling him that up till now, but we well, have. the text often mm. does because it's in it's the so well present known. where Coo Cullen mm. is his name and talking about the past. Mm. But there's a nice detail in the Book of Leinster version of this story, and that is that Shadenda doesn't want the new name. He prefers to be called Shadenda Maxuldov. But Cuthbert tells him that essentially, it would be better for him to embrace the new name because he'll become famous. That name is going to echo down through history. And as you might expect, the promise of that fame pleases the boy and he accepts this name, Cúchulain, under which we call him Mm, in story mm, to this mm. day. Now, in the Recension 1 version, he has no hesitation about accepting this new name, fame and all. It just seems like a really great idea to him. Well, maybe there needed to be a story to explain his several names maybe from different oral strands. Well, it might be, but 
I think that the giving of a new name, it seems to be a feature of the boyhood deeds tale type or mm-hmm. story form. There's only one other character who I can think of, and there may there may be others, but I don't know, uh, who has a specific boyhood deeds story, mm-hmm. and that's Finn McCovell. No, it's not so common, is it? It's not, no. And interestingly, in Finn's Machinivra, his boyhood deeds, there's a similar episode Mm. explaining how he gets the name by which we now call him. Mm. So Mm. it might just be a part of that story form. Now, the next episode that we're going to look at is about Cúchalán encountering some phantoms on the battlefield. Now, this is a story that appeared actually on an exam paper that I did. That's uh, why you're going to tell it. Yeah, yeah. But it is a good one. And I remember um, the lecturer afterwards saying, did you like the one with the severed heads? So that's the one we're going to tell now. Now, in Recension 1, there is a title to this story, uh, but the title is The Fight Between Jogan McDurthacht and Concover. We don't really hear about that fight, but what we hear about is this gory aftermath. The Ulstermen have gone off to fight Jogan while Cúchulainn is asleep back in Evan. Ulstermen are horribly defeated and their injured groans wake the sleeping child. Even from such a distance. Well, yeah, either the groans are very loud or his hearing is very good. Either way, as he awakens, he manages to smash those two pillar stones that are supporting his bed. Setting up for this. That's what I wondered about, all right. But there's a nice description, a nice detail, where Fergus, who is telling this story, adds, Brickrow over there saw that happen, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is calling the other witnesses to say, this is true, this has happened. Fergus goes on to say that he meets Cúchulainn in front of the fort as he himself is limping back to Evan from this fight. Cúchulainn greets him very warmly and he calls him a fob of Fergus. Now this pop of Fergus is usually translated as Master Fergus. You also get it with Master Cover, But it's really more like just saying Papa Fergus. It's almost like the honorary uncle. Yes. You know, a a friend of the family Mm. or someone you're related to. Yeah. You often get to call them, oh, Uncle so-and-so, even if they're not directly your father's... Brother, yes, but there's also yeah, but there's also I think a fosterage implication mm. because yeah. those fosterage terms for Adja and Buima, which are the fond forms, the daddy and mommy, this is like grandpa. You could yeah, so, that's that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah so yeah. you know, Papa Papa Cuncover, Papa Fergus, they're the the elders within this mm. fostered family. Anyhow, Cuchulain wants to know where Cuncover is, and Fergus doesn't know, so the boy sets off in the dark out to the battlefield to go and find him. The first thing that he meets is a man with half a head who's carrying half a man on Ooh, his back. Spooky. We need to change of music, yeah, background music there, don't absolutely. we? Absolutely. Now, this apparition calls Cúchulainn by name, and the name is Cúchulainn in this case. And he asks the boy to take a turn carrying his brother, which is the mangled corpse on his back. Cúchulainn very sensibly refuses to do this, but he gets the corpse thrown at him for his trouble. Cuchulain isn't having that. He starts wrestling with this man with half a head. But Cuchulain is thrown. He's floored. He's wrestled to the ground. Yeah. So he's not winning this time. He's not, no. But then he heard something. And that in the text is Cuchulainí. So another one of those markers. It is. Just like Kanakani, which is he saw something. This is just with hearing, but it's signalling something strange and important. And what he hears is the Badav calling from among the corpses. Now, it is just in Badav in the text, but 
I think that's the school crow. Yes, it is. Yeah. But I think that uh, Cecilia Rahley's translation goes a bit far because she just straightforwardly translates it as the war goddess. Mm. But after all, if it's just the bother of calling from the corpses. It's a significant crow. It is a significant crow. Could yeah. have been my cat. Well, your but... cat's not a crow. <laughs> She's a not. She's not. But it, while it is <laughs> something unusual, I think going the war goddess is kind of jumping a step too far. Mm. It's definitely special because it then goes on to speak. The Balav says to the boy, you're not going to make a great warrior if you can be overthrown by a phantom. This rightly riles Cúchulán up and he jumps to his feet, knocks the phantom's head off with his hurley stick and proceeds to pelt <laughs> it down the field in front of him. And that was the bit that Jürgen turned around and went, did you like the bit playing hurley with the severed head? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After that, Cúchulán finds Concover in a ditch and he seems to be up to his oxters in the mud. He's stuck. I think so, Yes. Cover asks why the child has come out to the battlefield at night where he might die of fright. Yeah, they're scary things. There are. And I think it's not just because Cuchulain is a child. I think it's also there are plenty of references to the dangers of being on a battlefield the night after that you might meet all kinds of scary things and, yeah, it can send you out of your mind or mm. actually frighten you to death. Cuchulain's response is to pull Cuncover out of the ditch. So he was stuck. It seems so. A feat which Fergus says that their best six warriors could not have done more courageously. Praise indeed. Yeah. Cuncover asks to be brought to a nearby house which Cuchulain does and then lights a fire for him. Then Papa Concover says he might just live if he could only eat a whole roast pig. So it's not that badly injured. <laughs> well, I don't know. You yeah. know, I can imagine the mm. old man going, oh, I'm dying of the hunger. I, I could, could eat a whole pig. pig. Yeah. Cuchulain dutifully goes out into the woods and there he encounters a fearsome man at a cooking pit who's holding his weapons in one hand and roasting a pig with the other. Cuchulain overwhelms him and he carries the pig and the head back with him to Concover. The latter eats the pig. We don't know what happened to the head. (laughs) Or half a head, maybe. Well, yeah, go on. Yeah, Cuchulain carries the replenished Concover back with him to Evwin and they pick up and carry another wounded Ulsterman on the way. Demonstrating his supernatural strength again. Well it is but maybe also calling another witness to the truth of it, you know. But whatever, this is a hugely intriguing story with a lot of significant mythical details. Yes. I really like it. Mm. I suppose first and foremost, looking at the story, it does serve as a bonding story between Concover and his new protégé. Yes. I yeah. mean, clearly, Cahoulin is, is a protégé. Yes, and things like using that that term, a fuppa, is mm. that kind of fondness of the, the foster father and the foster Because he's not son. an official foster father, is he? He's not, but Concover did uh, give a personal guarantee yeah, that Cuchulain wouldn't that be bonded, uh, wouldn't be attacked by the, the Mockred, but yeah, there is clearly something very special. They are also related, mm-hmm. that Cuchulain is either well, he is his uncle. Yeah, or, yeah, either nephew or grandson. Yeah. You know, in, in a lot of these, the larger Depending on texts, whether it's his sister or his daughter. Exactly. So there is a close family relationship, but it's more than that. Yeah. Let's look at some of the more uh, remarkable details. You've got this rare corpse carrying motive. Yes. And it's not that common. Uh, but this time it's not a, a whole corpse. This is a half corpse yeah. carried by a, a man with half a head. Yeah. Now, if you think back to the adventures of Nero, yes, 
we did comment then on how strong was the image of carrying a corpse on your back. Absolutely. But this is even more strange. It is, yeah. And after all, the Adventures of Nera is part of the Thine tradition. It's named as one of the Ravesgelta, one of the pre-stories. And so we can put a link. Yeah, don't worry. We've done Nera so many times. <laughs> we will be coming back to it again. Yes. The halfness. Is it another one of these signs that Cahullan, if you like, is only half in the world and half out of it? It's this this constant reference to halfness or being in two places at once. Yes, and also that business of the, the mangled body with the warp spasm, that the Cahullan doesn't seem stable, mm. as we said earlier. You know, his, his physical form doesn't seem and this, stable. this half man with his mm. half corpse, mm. he's also, the, the half corpse is the brother yes. he's carrying. Yeah, yeah. It's it's odd in a way that 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 Colin has parts of himself which aren't there as well. In, yeah, in the birth story. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, what I what it made me think of was actually from a, a contemporary novel by Steph Penny, uh, Tenderness of Wolves, where there's a character who's called Half Man because he's someone who who's so destroyed by drink, but also by violence, and mm. he's unpredictable and has to be kind of hidden from view. And it's not something that is completely unheard of. I mm. was just thinking back to the birth of Lou in the Welsh mm-hmm. version, mm-hmm. where he has the half-brother, Dylan, who yes. is also of the same birth, yes. yet not of it. Mm. Mm. I, it's not unique, but it's certainly really strange. It is, yeah. And after all, if we're talking about someone with half a head, you might as well say he's not all there. <laughs> or away with the fairies. Or away with the fairies, indeed, yeah. Now... Another important fact is that this event takes place after a battle which Ulster is in fact lost. Yes. And Concover is effectively in mortal danger. Yeah. Effect maybe himself straddling two worlds. Yes, yes. That he's that there if he's not rescued, li- he's going to die. Yeah. Now, we've already said that this story creates a, an even deeper bond between the two of them. Mm. If you like, the younger is bringing the older back from the brink of death. Yeah, yeah. And in a very physical way, carrying him back from the battlefield. So, yeah, there's something more going on than just a medic on the battlefield. And in a way, in folkloric terms, Mm. the phantom is ascending. A message from the other world saying that the boy has to do something important. He must take action now. Yeah, he's warning that someone close Mm. to him is in danger in that way. Now, the meeting with the Bive... You said, that, and I agree with you, the translation goes too far. Yes. It is a school crow, but it does have a double meaning. Mm. We've talked a lot about how birds go between this world and the other world, and in this case, that other world is the other world of death. One of the reasons I think she challenges uh, Colin mm. is at this point, he is facing mortality, mm. but he's got to, re- you know, he never seems to have a fear of anything. No, no. But she's reminding him that he also has to face the mortality of others. Yes, yeah. I um, may be reading too much into it, but I think it's there. I think it is, yeah, that, you know, she's telling him to get up and fight, and if he doesn't, he's not going to rescue, can cover. And so this is, if you like, the child's first meeting with the possibility of the people he loves actually dying. It's not just, I'm not afraid of anything. Exactly, yeah. So that this nearly knocks him for six. Yes, it's quite, uh, it's very significant. And I think it's also important in terms of the the larger Thoin tradition that this would seem to be Cúchalán's first meeting with mm. the Bada Vor the Morrigan. Mm. And mm. in this case, he does pay attention. This time he listens. Yes. He's not yeah. going to listen later on. No, exactly. And, and this time he does get it right. Yes, he does. Another thing that's interesting is the symbol of the, the pig meat. I mean, there's a problem. He can 
pool can cover over a ditch. Yeah. He can carry him to, to a house. He can get him warmth. Mm. But he can't get him better because he, the man needs feeding. Yes. Yeah. So we can't save him with strength alone, mm. which is why I think that my previous thought about uh, him facing the mortality yes. of someone else. Yeah, yeah feels relevant yes so and, off and, he goes to find a pig yes and of course just in in general terms there's no distinction in early irish thought between food and medicine it is the same thing so mm-hmm. in terms of yes you've got him out of the the dangerous place and you're getting him warm he but he still him. needs medicine he still needs food yeah he, he needs healing and yeah. that's something that all call and strength and ability cannot do the pig represents more than just food for an empty stomach. Mm. This, it's an important symbol in these stories, is that the, the pig, if you like, is a life-giving food of champions. Yes. And restores more than just simple vitality. Yes. Um, and after all, with the particularly that figure of the man in the woods who's roasting the pig, yeah. that's very redolent of uh, the man in the story of Cormac and his journey where he meets a man roasting a pig and that's a pig that cannot cook until the truths are told around it. That's right. And so, that when it's cooked, yes. if the bones are saved, yes, then, it'll then the pig will be restored to life. Exactly, yeah. And that is a later allegorical story, mm, but, but it tells what the pig means. It does, and it, it, it shows what that image is about, I think, mm. as well. Now, we already know that the pig is the meat divided up for the champion's portion. Yes. Uh, like in Brick Ruth's Feast. Yes, and indeed in in Shkela Mwikam Macdartho, the, t- the story of Macdartho's pig, where Connell manages to finally get the champion's portion. But mm-hmm. the pig is important in that. Pig feasts have been important since Neolithic times. Yeah. Now, there's just one example. The work that's been done at Darrington Walls mm. uh, in Wiltshire, near Stonehenge, yeah. has shown that there were huge pig feasts that yeah. took place. Well, even up to modern times, you might keep your, your cattle and your sheep over winter and to, to breed again in the spring. But it's the pig that you keep all year long and fatten up and you kill the pig in the Martin middle of mass. winter. Yeah. There's a practical reason yes. for it, but there's also a symbolic. Exactly, and very often the most practical things are what give rise to the symbolic. But the other thing I was wondering with this image, there's no description really given except that this man in the middle of the woods is fearsome. But just that image of the man roasting the pig, is that an echo of the swine herds? Well, we said it would turn up again and again and again. Yes. The yeah. stories always refer back to that as, if you like, the, the paradigm, the yeah. proto story. Yeah. And we know they weren't just pig keepers. No, that they certainly weren't. <laughs> or at least they were pig keepers, but that, that was a highly significant thing to be. Yes, yes. We know that they, they had more tricks up mm. their sleeves. And I was also interested because in... Dinyanicus terms, there are a number of sites which obviously the Dinyanicus makers didn't understand in archaeological terms, mm-hmm. but they did call them the Morrigan's cooking pit. And I think there's a number of them around the kind of Brunaboyna area. Even archaeologists today are not absolutely certain no. what they were intended for. Some no. people say they were brewing sites, mm-hmm. uh, cooking sites, travelling, hunting, yes. you know, outdoor kitchen sites, yes. but nobody is certain. Yeah. Just that there are an awful lot of them. Yes, and the, the Irish term for them is the Fulloch which means a kind of a wild uh, Mm. oven or cooking place. But they do show up in the stories like particularly stories of Finn mm-hmm. uh, they talk about the Falacht Fia which I think is what is being described here with I'm the man sure in the cooking is, pit yeah. and I, th- I find it interesting that in this story where Cuchulain first encounters the Baileth that we have 
a, a site which could be one of these Morrigan's cooking pits. Mm-hmm. Now, for the next part of the story, we're going back to the second recension, the Book of Leinster version. And this part is recounted by yet another exiled Ulsterman, this time Fiacha McFirava. And back comes Cathbad, oh, yes. back into the story. Now, apparently he taught his eight pupils at a place just northwest of Arnmacher. And one day, one of them asks Cathbad, oh, for what purpose is this particular day favourable? Mm-hmm. Well, Cathbad replies that, that any youth who first takes arms and armour on this day will far outstrip the abilities of any other. He also says the downside of taking arms on this day would mean a short lifetime. Yeah. And, of course, as might be expected, uh, Coholan picks up half the story. Yes, yes. There are a few good details here. The text tells us that even though Coholan is some distance from Evelyn, he still overhears a part of Cosford's speech. Mm, just uh, like in the previous story. Yes, where he hears the injured Ulsterman groaning. So maybe he's got super hearing as well as the various other things. But with the first bit of Cuthbert's speech ringing in his ears, Cuchulain takes off his play suit, his play armour, and puts aside his sports equipment and rushes off to find Concover to demand that he must take arms immediately. Now! But effectively, he, he gets his way by lying to Concover. Yes, well, with typical toddlerish behaviour, <laughs> he tells as much as the truth as will get him his own way. When Concover asks who prompted him to come and demand his arms, the boy says that it was Cuthbert who told him. It told him to come and get them. Yeah. Cathvad's authority gets Cahill in his own way. Well, naturally, this is Concover's own father, after all. But it's not going to be that simple. Never is with Cahill. No, it isn't. Although Concover has a great stock of spears and shields and sores all ready for the sort of graduation arming of the Mockred. None of them are good enough for Cuchulain. He takes each in turn, tries them out and smashes them all into bits. He gets through 17 whole sets. Yes. (laughs) It's only the best for Cuchulain. So the king sighs. He then hands over his own personal weapons. Yes. But of course, Cuchulain tries those out and he likes them. At this point, Cuthford arrives and is absolutely disgusted to see that this boy is taking arms. When Cuthbert is questioning why the boy is doing this, Concover points out that Cuchulain is here on Cuthbert's own instructions. Yeah, but it wasn't me, asked <laughs> I never told him. Well, now the child has been caught out in his economy of the truth. <laughs> and even the king turns around and calls him a brat this yes. time. What do you mean by telling me this? Why did you lie to me? So finally Cuchulain, under duress, tells the whole truth. Now... In recension one, it's only now that Cuchulain discovers the part of the story he has missed about having a famous life but a nasty, brutish and short one. In the recension two version, he knew this all along, still went ahead with it. But anyway, when he's confronted with this, his answer is that he doesn't care. Fame is much more important to him than turning into an old man. You can't imagine that. It's that typical immortality of youth. Yes. I would remember talking to my uncle, who is now, uh, I think, 92, 93, Mm. and I was asking him about the Second World War when he wanted to be a fighter pilot towards the end of the war. And I said, how did you feel about wanting to become a fighter pilot when surely you knew that... Six weeks was the like yeah. lifespan of a of a of Second World War fighter pilot. Yeah, yeah. And he said, "Oh no, no, we didn't think of that." He said, "We don't think I was even aware of it." But 
Well, even if I had, I wouldn't have taken any notice. Yeah. After all, who could not want to be a fighter pilot? Yeah, yeah. And fly a Spitfire. Yeah, yeah. Now, he couldn't in the end because he turned out to be colourblind. <laughs> so he went off to disarm mines instead. But, well, that's possibly what kept him alive so it long. It really made me think yeah. of how people manage this. Again, oh, yeah. this sense of, but it's a really cool thing to do. Yeah. We see it makes Cohelan's actions not so uh, difficult to understand. Exactly. We're, we have here, once again, a very believable youthful and impetuous careless character that sense of the immortality of the young even though technically Cucullin is still a young child but he is behaving like an adolescent and, and of there's... course we have to remember he, he looks like exactly one. yeah you have this thing all the time where it's either like an adolescent in a child's body or more usually a child in the adolescent's body yeah he never actually survives beyond adolescence well, the second part of this story repeats the same motives as the previous one, but this time it concerns Kunkava's chariot. Yes. Sorry, it's Cathfad who pushes him on mm. and says, well, OK, you want to be a hero, get into a chariot, see how you cope then. Yes, so in other words, you've got a gun, now have a fast car. Wonderful <laughs> teaching from the elders there. <laughs> as you might expect, Cuchulain tests several of these chariots to destruction and he just reduces them to smithereens. And it's once again these 17 chariots that Concover has set aside for his Mockred. So it's not really fair on the other boys, is it? No. Nope. But Concover sends for his own charioteer, Yovar Makriangavra. Now, Makriangavra is the same surname that's given to Loig, who will mm-hmm. be Cuchulain's own charioteer. But that rein part of the rein govera is like horse reins, basically. Mm. So it could either be a job title, but it could be implying that Iver is the father or mm. the elder, the master charioteer, it and Lloyd the be younger. Yuvar the charioteer. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Anyhow, Concover sends for Yuvar and asks him to prepare Concover's own personal chariot and harness up his own horses. <laughs> Kugalan is finally satisfied with the best chariot in Ulster and sets off for a test drive. But when Uver Macriangara suggests that they now is the time they should unharness the chariot and let the horses have a rest, Kugalan has other ideas. Oh, it's too early for that, he says. Let's drive around Owen Maka. Yeah. He wants to go and show off his fancy arms armour and now his chariot in front of all the boys. Yes. And this is exactly what he does, and as expected, they're kind of impressed. Well, they are, yes. He's got the flashest car in the entire province. And they all wish him success. They cheer on that this is the day that he's taken his adult arms and he's going to be a great warrior, and they wish him luck with his first slaying. But they'll be sorry that he's not going to be staying with them and that he won't be on their hurley team anymore. So this really points out that the taking of arms and armour is a sign that you're now counted as one of the adults. Yes, it's the graduation. That particular paragraph really puts that in. It does, yeah. But then, I don't know, I find this slightly odd. Cohen assures them that it's not so and says that it's because of a charm that's made him have to take arms on this day. Mm. It's almost like he's making excuses that it's not my fault, Mm. I didn't mean it. Yes, or, you know, I have to do this. It doesn't sound like him. It doesn't, but this is one of the things that makes me very dubious of Cathford's role in all Mm. this. Cathford is like one of Macbeth's witches. He seems to be making these prophecies and saying, oh, it has to be like this, fate has determined it. But maybe it's determined because he says it. Mm. So maybe mm. Cuchulain is feeling that he's being he pushed, pushed yeah. in a particular role by the people around and him. And again, that's that human touch. He's mm. suddenly looking back on the boys yeah. and their sports and going, 
Oh, maybe I would have liked I, I, that. Yeah, I really did belong with you. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. an odd feeling to that paragraph, There is, there? yeah, and you get that from time to time with Cucullin, but then he gets distracted by something shiny because <laughs> the next thing is that he sets off in spite of Yora's protestations and they go on this long and somewhat bloody progress around Ulster, much like he does later in Fledfrickwin and indeed in Mesca Ullad, which mm-hmm. takes in the whole country. They go off on this drunken rampage. He does a lot of this, doesn't he? He does, yes. This is Chariot like... riding around the country. Yeah, <laughs> in one go I know boy racer how are you but he does have a lot of significant adventures on this his maiden voyage they're taking the main road out from Evan and he asks Yuvar where the road leads to and he's told that it leads to an important ford which is called Osna Ferrara which is the the lookout ford or the the ford of watching which is in Schlieffwood this very mm-hmm. mountainous area that's kind of at the heart of Ulster in many ways when Cucullin inquires why it has this name Yuvar tells him that a stout warrior of Ulster is on watch and on guard there every day so that there doesn't come into Ulster any strange youths to challenge the Ulster to battle. But this guard is also kind of on the lookout for new talent, whether they're champion warriors or poets and song makers. That guard is there to see who's for them and who's against them, who's friend and who's foe. And test out poets, it seems like. That's the thing. And I think that con- concurs with one of these things in the poetic text where they talk about one of the low grades of poet, which is called a drishik, a bramble hound. And I think that this is a trainee poet who's sent out to the borders and that any visiting poet who's coming into the territory, and as we know, poets could cross boundaries mm-hmm. and had a very important role in doing that. But the drishik is there, I think, to say, go on then, show us all the meters and tell us the titles of the, all the yeah, stories. Show us, your, show us your poetic passport. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Demonstrate your qualifications. So, Nevertheless, it seems that the Ulster men are recruiting. It does, or at least making sure they know who's who and that no one takes them by surprise. When Cuchulain hears that it's none other than Conal Cairnoch who is on watch at the ford at that moment, he wants to go there straight away. Connell thinks that Cuchulain is frankly a little bit young for this and thinks it's all a bit premature. And says so. Yeah, of course he does, yeah. Well, at that, the precocious brat responds that now he has arrived, Connell might as well go home. <laughs> Leave guiding to me, I'm better at it than you. Yeah, you don't course. have to do it anymore, you're yeah. getting too old for it. Yeah. It's that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Now, Connell's very uh, gentle with him and says, mm. well, look, yes, I'm sure you'll be really good, but you might need a little while before you can take on a adult warrior. Yes. Just give it a, a few more white weeks or something. Yeah. He's, he's almost amused by this. I think so, and trying to patronise Remind him that he's he's not quite there yet, that he doesn't have the experience. That typical uncle, oh, you're going to be a big boy one day. Yeah. And he tries that on the mm-hmm. child, and he really doesn't like it. No, no. <laughs> Cullen starts showing off and announces that, okay, if you won't have me here, I will go south and find my own important forward to guide. <laughs> Yes, well, where he's heading to is to Fertus Locke Echtron, which is the bank of Loch Echtra. Echtra, to me, suggests the Echtra, which is an exploit or an adventure. So I wonder whether this is somewhere that you go to find an adventure, to find a challenge. Although it is on the south, it's it's on the border of it's Ulster. an interesting, significant name, which I will go to the bank of exploits. Yes, and see what adventure I could find it's there. A bit, a bit Arthurian, in that. He feels that he's bound to find some enemies to mm. fight down there. In fact, 
fact, he says, I may redden my hands on friend or foe this day. Well, yes, which is always a bit worrying when someone says that to you when they're holding a sword. If Cuchulain is going to head off like this, that Connell should at least go with him. So he goes and gets his chariot and his horses ready and follows Cuchulain as fast as he can. But when he finally catches up, Cuchulain is so certain that Connell will stop him from challenging anyone. Yeah that he's going to spoil the fun, Mm. that he picks up a stone, puts it into his sling and hurls it straight at the yoke of Connell's chariot. Yeah. And not only does he break the chariot yoke, he also manages to injure Connell. It says, so that the nape of his neck went out from his shoulder. Looks like he dislocates his shoulder with the stone. Yes. (laughs) And then he has the cheek to say, oh, I only cast a stone to test my marksmanship. Yes, it's a complete coincidence that it has shattered your chariot and injured your shoulder. Poor old Connell. I mean, he's had it by now and he just shouts after the brat, even if your enemies take your head, I'm not going any further to protect you. That was the whole idea, Crow's <laughs> And poor old Connell, defeated and probably a bit disgusted, goes back to his watching place at the ford. Now, as it happens... When Colin gets to the bank of exploit, he hangs around there all day and meets absolutely no one. <laughs> but in spite of Yuva's wheedling, he still won't go home. He still wants more adventures. Yeah, I know. He's obviously not going oh, to go on, home. I haven't killed anyone yet. Yeah. <laughs> He's enjoying this first trip out and he wants to know more about the province, which is understandable when it's your, your first day out and exploring the territory. He demands that Yelva bring him to a high point and point out to him all the significant places in mm. the area. Mm. Now from this high point in Ulster they can see down as far as Brune the Boyne, mm. Nowth and Douth and uh, Newgrange. Long way. They also see the stronghold of the Machnecht and Shgena, the sons of Necht and This will become significant later. Yes. But I think all the time, he is demanding Din Hyanaka's information. Yes. Concerning the province. Mm. And, and rightly, he is, does seem to be considering this to be an important part of his new adult status. Have new adult knowledge. Well, yes, and if you imagine that from a lookout point, it's not just about anyone who comes over the border here. You need to know where is our territory and where is over the border. So mm. it is very important that anyone who's going to take that role has to have that knowledge. Yeah, and it's something it is this, a warrior has to know. It is, and it mm. does seem to be like part of that adult knowledge, as you say. That's what I was yeah. thinking. It's it, it's for once he's asking the right questions. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and not just showing off. But however, Yuva is not happy at all with no. this unplanned journey. He's getting a bit fed up with it and Cuchulain naturally just doesn't care. And he calls Yuva a lazy loon. Yeah, he says, you're a lazy loon considering this is my first adventure quest and this is your first trip with me. Yes, as just if Yuva should be it. appreciating that. <laughs> but Yuva is just exasperated and says, if I ever get back to Evwenmacher, forever and forever, may it be my last journey. Right. And this might perhaps mean that he retires as soon as he gets back. <laughs> well, this is not the last adventure that Cuchalan has on this wild journey. Yeah, after failing totally to demonstrate his bloodthirsty powers at the, where is it, the Bank of Loch Echtra. Yeah, the Bank of Exploits. He goes on to kill the three sons of Nechton in a manner that would make the average slasher film look positively tame. Well, yes, uh, but the story does have interesting details in it. We might as well go through 
When Cúchulainn arrives at the dune of the Machnechtan Schéine, there on the green in front of the dune, he finds a pillar stone with a band of iron around it. And written in Ogham on that band, it says, whoever should come to this green, if he is a champion, it is gesh for him to depart the green without giving challenge to single combat. Now, this is a familiar motive, but there's a twist to this one. Mm. I mean, it's Cullen we're talking about. <laughs> what he does is to put his arms around the great big pillar mm. and hurl it straight into the river. Yes, which is not what you might call a rational well, it's response. It's cutting the Gordian knot. <laughs> well, Yover is really spooked by this. He knows that this means death and destruction is right on their heels. I just love his wry comment. He looks at the boy and says, yeah, and it's no better now than where it was before. <laughs> you haven't done any good at all. <laughs> and uh, Cahullan's reaction? He lies down and goes to, goes to sleep. Time for a nap. Well, it's been a very long day, let's face it. He's just not bothered. And naturally enough, this doesn't go without comment. The first of the sons of Nechtenschgen arrives, and that is full. Now, Yover does his best to persuade this warrior that Cuchulain is just a young boy, just a youth who's taken arms this day for luck. luck. And that he just borrowed a couple of Concover's horses. He's just going around the borders of Ulster showing off all of his shiny bling. Uh, Well, it's sort of the truth. (laughs) But Yover says that anyway, just look at him. He's not fit for deeds. He's only only seven years out of his crib. Although you you would think so from his behaviour, but he does at this stage, Mm. let's remember, look like a 14-year-old. But he really is still just a small child. Cúchulain, however, is not having that. He doesn't want anyone thinking he's not fit for warrior deeds, he begins demonstrating some elements of this warp spasm that we met before. The text says that he becomes as one crimson wheel ball from the crown of his head to the ground. And he challenges Will. Now, Yover warns the child that neither points nor edges of weapons can hurt Will. But Cúchulain has a way around this. He is going to use the laugh feet. Now, the laugh feet seems to be this. He says, I will take this ball of twice melted iron and I will just hit the disc of his shield and it'll go straight through the shield. It'll hit the flat of his forehead and it will carry away part of his brain the size of an (laughs) apple which will go out through the back of his head so that it will make a hole in his head that the light of the sky will shine through. And of course, it's using no points or edges. Exactly. See, I got around that one. But that's exactly what he does and takes away the spoils of battle, which naturally includes Fwill's own head. With the hole in. Yeah. <laughs> so entirely his chariot by the hole in his brain. <laughs> yeah, and that's one down. Yes. Now, the second son of Nechten arrives and this one is called Tuchel, which literally means cunning and he can't be defeated unless he is taken down with the first blow. Now, Cuchulain dispatches him with Concover's well-tempered lance. This one is called the Krashuk Neva or the venomous branch, the venomous lance. Now what he does with this one is he picks up the lance, he strikes the enemy's shield above his belly, breaks straight through the ribs on the further side, piercing his heart within the breast. And then 
strikes off his head before it even touches the ground. Charming. And Cucullan's only remark on this is, well, from me, he shall not get sick nursing or care until the brink of doom. And that's too down. That is too down. Now, when he says he's not going to get any sick nursing from me, what he's saying is this was not an illegal attack, so I don't owe anyone any compensation. This was completely justified, even though I've just randomly shown up at these people's house and I'm cutting their they heads off. They shouldn't have put the pillows down there, should they? Well, <laughs> Now it's the turn of the youngest son, and his name is Fanel, which, nice, is a lovely word. It means swallow, and in modern Irish we still have Fanla means a swallow. But he has this name because he is a famous swimmer. Yover tells Cuchulain that he has the name Swallow, Fanel, because it is like a swallow or weasel that he moves through the sea. The swimmers of the world cannot reach him. I suppose a swallow moves through the air as mm. if he's swimming through water. Mm. The way they, sw- they fly is incredible. Now, Cuchulain is absolutely undaunted and he boasts of his swimming prowess. He says, you know the river that's in our land? Well, I can carry a boy over it one on each of my palms and a boy on each of my shoulders and I myself do not even get my ankles wet under the weight. Well, Cuchulain wrestles with Fanel and pushes him down under the water and cuts off his head with Concover's sword. He grabs the head but leaves the body to be just swept away in the river. What did I say about slasher films? <laughs> yeah, that's all three down. <laughs> well, yes. And then what he does is he goes into the dune, pillages the place and burns it down so that the buildings are no higher than the walls. Well, <laughs> has he reddened his hands? I think he most certainly has. Yeah, and he's not left a happy scene behind him. No, he? he's left a wailing mother. Nechtenschkena herself is absolutely distraught at the loss of her three champion sons, yes. and who wouldn't be? Yeah. But there's a few more marvellous exploits. Anyway, the Cuchulain is going to add to his bag before he gets back to Evan. Yep. He sees a herd of wild deer on Schlieffurt. Now, this is a bit odd, because he doesn't seem to know what they are. Mm. He asks whether they're wild or tame, but the implication is that he doesn't recognise deer. Mm. He calls them nimble cattle well this is a seven-year-old who's kind of out of home for the very first time it's perhaps a a reminder that although he looks like a 14-year-old and has just beheaded three full-grown warriors he still only has the experience of a child Mm. he's not as wise as he appears well he does want to catch some of these nimble cattle and so he instructs Yuver to drive the horses after them but the text says that the king's somewhat overfed horses are unable to keep up with the deer so the boy jumps down from the chariot and runs after them on foot and he catches two of the swiftest deer he brings them back to the chariot still alive alive yeah and he lashes them to the poles at the back of the chariot using the prongs and the bows that are there as part of it They've got live deer attached to the chariot yes <laughs> well exactly the same thing happens when they see flocks of white swans mm. And again, he doesn't seem to know anything about them. Mm. He doesn't recognise them as whether they're wild or tame. And again, he asks, well, which would be order? Uh, Would it be more interesting to bring them back alive or dead? And alive would be far the greater feat, says Yover, because not everyone succeeds in taking the birds alive. And in fact, much like the deer, (laughs) you expect hunters to bring them back dead. But bringing them back alive, not everyone does that. He doesn't think of that. No, no. He just wants them because they look good. Yes. They're bling. <laughs> yeah. Then he achieves what is referred to as one of his lesser feats. Mm. He puts a small stone in his sling and brings down eight of the birds. And then he, br- he throws a larger stone and brings down 16. 
15 of them. Yes. And he fastens them to the hind poles with the thongs and the bows and the rope to the traces of the chariot, etc. And presumably they're still alive. Well, yes. He's now got a couple of wild deer and half a flock of swans tied to the chariot. Along with all the heads and spoils. Oh yes, absolutely. Let's not forget all those severed heads. But it's the next section that's really memorable. Well, it's Yuva again. And after all, he is a very memorable person, I find. Yes. Now, charioteers are often very interesting. They are often very funny, very wry, but they kind of goad their chariot fighters into action, often by taking the piss out of them or by undermining them to make the warrior angry and keep him going to the next bit of the story. Although here he's trying to protect him. He is, in a way, but he still has that role of the charioteer. Yeah, it's interesting. He reminds me a bit of Makandav mm. in the Mongorn story. Yes. And it's been striking me for a long while that the charioteer and his relationship with the hero mm. is extremely interesting. He's, yes. he's not a servant, he's a companion to heroes. Mm. And he stands a little bit like the Batman to the officer. Yes, yes. And there's something about the role of the companion to heroes mm. in stories which has always interested me. Yes, yeah. Uh, one day I'll put an article up about mm-hmm. this this role of charioteer and his hero mm-hmm. in the same way as you have the traditional fantasy of the companion to heroes. Yes, and let's not forget that in the uh, older conception of Cúchulain, Dechtana, as Concover's daughter, is also his chariot driver. Mm. So she has that very close relationship to Concover as well. It's really interesting. Yes. It deserves looking into further, but we better get back to we'll the story. We'll get back to this. What's happened is that Cuchulain has taken these birds down with these somewhat wondrous slingshots and he wants over to go out and collect them and bring them back. But Yover complains that the chariot is so full of stuff that he can't actually <laughs> move. He says, I'm in dire straits. I don't find it easy to go. The horses have become wild so I can't go past them. If I move from the chariot then the iron wheels of the chariot will cut me down because of their sharpness and because of the strength and the power and the might of the career of the horses. If moving I'm, fast. If I make any move the horns of the deer <laughs> will pierce and gore me. You can see his point. Yes. But as usual Cullen has an answer for everything. He says he will look at them and they will behave. <laughs> And what he actually says in the text is because of the look I shall give the horses, they will not move from the road. The look I give the deer will mean that they will bend their heads in fear and awe of me. (laughs) They will not dare move and it will be safe for you even if you walk in front of their horns. (laughs) How's that for a bit of showing off? Yes. So... There he's got his live deer and live birds. What an image. Uh, Yes, and this image is exactly what our old friend Levercombe sees coming towards Evan Macha. And she gives a description of this extraordinary scene. And I must read this. She says, A single chariot fighter is here coming towards Owen Macha. And his coming is fearful, the heads of his foes all red in his chariot with him, beautiful all-white birds he has hovering around in the chariot, with him a wild untamed deer bound and fettered, shackled and pinioned, and I give my word, if he be not attended to this night, blood will flow over Concover's province by him, and all the youths of Ulster will fall by his hand. And not for the last time, the court of Evelyn has to calm Cúchulain down before he can be received back into polite society. What they do, though, is they send out to meet him three fifties of women 
10 and 7 score, it repeats for emphasis. But these are stark naked women. <laughs> Just like when you arrived at Crookham yeah. in Flet Brickroom. Uh, I mean, they, they, have, they go, oh my goodness, what do we do? And they send out, send the, out the naked women. <laughs> <laughs> but what's odd this time, it says, but because he's such a little boy, in fact, he doesn't stare at the women. He turns his head and stares at his chariot. <laughs> but they still have to plunge him into cold water. Oh, yes, yes. And it's, it's not even one vat. No, the first says the first vat into which he was put burst its staves in its hoops like the cracking of nuts around him. Lovely image. Yeah. You can hear the sound of bursting iron. Yeah. The next vat boiled with bubbles as big as fists. <laughs> and the third vat, well, some men might endure it and others might not. In other words, he, yes. it was cooling. But it's still quite like a hot bath. He was cooling down. <laughs> yes. He was heating up the water. Mm. And at last the boy's wrath went down. So he came out and festive garments were placed on him. Yes. Now, there's a slight strangeness in this part of the text because it's only after he has been calmed down and he's got through these three vats of water that he seems to go into full warp spasm transformation. It's after his his bloodlust and his battle frenzy has cooled. And this is a very full description. It is. So it is worth reading. He made a crimson wheel ball of himself from his crown to the ground. Seven toes he had to each of his two feet and seven fingers to each of his two hands and seven pupils to each of his two kingly eyes and seven gems of the brilliance of the eye was each separate pupil. Four spots of down on either of his two cheeks, a blue spot, a purple spot, a green spot and a yellow spot. Fifty strands of bright yellow hair from one ear to the other, like to a comb of birch twigs or like to a brooch of pale gold in the face of the sun. A clean white shorn spot was upon him as if a cow had licked it. (laughs) A hooded tunic of thread of gold about him, a fair lace green mantle about him, a silver pin therein over his white breast. And the lad was seated between the two feet of Concover, and that was his couch for ever after. And the king began to stroke his close-shorn hair. Wow, some child won't to make of that. <laughs> well, it's quite extraordinary. I find it interesting that it seems to be positive to have extra fingers and toes. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if five fingers is enough for a normal person, then Cucullum must have seven. And this spiky hair, oh, the which hair is, is great. described like a hedgehog. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. uh, and these weird coloured spots. Yes, yes. This is not the spots of blotches. Or, no, no, or, this, or, is something, or, this is something completely different. Well, again, it's often you find a description of the, the kirker, the coral purple, which is it's a sign of nobility in the mm-hmm. cheeks. So it may be that because Cuchulain is so much more times noble and extraordinary that he must have other colours as well. Most extraordinary, certainly. We'll come back to it. Yes, I'm And sure lots of people have spent a long time discussing it and nobody's come up with any answers. It's just what is. Yes, but I think that one of the best responses, of course, is Irish punks who would put their hair into pole spikes and say, look, it's just like Cuchulain. Like a hedgehog. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant, but we can't go into it all now. Yeah. Now, if we were... Summing up Cahullan and his childhood deeds, there's no doubt that he's a precocious brat (laughs) and a child from hell. Yes. (laughs) But it's the fact that this impression is given so strongly and given so much emphasis Mm. that makes this text so very appealing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a very 
recognisably, if you like, human child, but all the characters... <laughs> well, sort of. Yes, <laughs> well, you know, all that brattish behaviour yeah, yeah, and complaint absolutely. and economy with the truth. And it's to get not fair. Yeah, not I haven't now. finished playing, yeah. Let. Yeah, all of that. It's so recognisable. But all the other characters as well are interesting and engaging and distinct. I do think, though, that the piece comes across in quite a literary construction, mm -hmm. whether that's oral or written. It has a very conscious construction to it. And I find it so interesting that there are all of these stories and incidents which are nested within the larger narrative. You've got essentially direct speech and characters within the story are telling the story themselves. It keeps it very interesting and very modern. Yes, it does, doesn't it? And, mm. and very relatable as well. Mm. Um, but going back to Cahill and the, and the character of the child, yes. I think I, I, I've got a bit more to say. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I, I'm an infant teacher yeah. by background and he kind of horrifies me. Yeah, yeah. But I think what communicates most is the general exasperation felt by everyone who comes into contact with him. Well, except for Concover, who <laughs> thinks that he can use this to his own advantage, I have to right. say. dotes on him. But he never listens to a word he's told. Mm -hmm. He ignores his mother's instructions totally. Yes. He has to get his own way, whatever. Uh -huh. He has to have the last word, whatever. Mm. He bullies the other boys and everyone else. Oh, yeah. He breaks any equipment he doesn't immediately <laughs> have a need for, whether anyone else wants it or not. Yeah. He breaks any guess she meets. Oh, yeah. He, like throwing the pillar stones, catching yes. the white birds, etc. Yeah. And how Connells copes with the insufferable <laughs> infant, I cannot imagine. And yet, Concover absolutely loves him. He's totally indulgent towards yeah. the child and encourages all this horrible behaviour. I have behavior. to say, I'm sure the audience for this story would have been equally entertained. Well, yes, and possibly... <laughs> relieved that their own toddlers were not quite that bad. Not, yeah, okay, well, at least mine's not that bad. Yeah. yeah, and at the same time, I'm kind of proud of him. Uh, yes. Because he's special. And that's how people often are with children, let's face it. Well, there are parts of the story that we've gone through today, or the number of stories, which do foreshadow some of the future episodes. And they may be there Cuban's to life. foreshadow his future. This I is think, maybe why they're so important. I think possibly, like mm. we posit with those pillar stones for his bed that then are put there so that he can smash them up in a later story. Mm, but there's later pillar stones become even more important. They later do on, they? and like the one that he, he lifts up and throws in the river but it still has the same effect. There are many pillar stones such as the one he ties himself to when he fights Ferdia, his foster brother which is one of the last episodes in the time. And I think he dies as well, strapped to a pillar stone. Yes, yeah, so the wonderful statue yes, in, the in the GPO, GPO shows him dying attached to a pillar yes, stone. Yes, and then, of course, that thing with capturing half a flock of, of wild swans. We know, as we've talked about before, that at the very least in the shared leg at Conculan, when he is sick of the lovesickness, that is foreshadowed by all these great white birds coming and they're paired in chains, just like the white birds who are a plague on Ulster. So, so these are going to come back again and again. And they're going to come back to haunt him. not going to capture them next time. They're no. going to capture him. And they're going to beat him up and Sorry, laugh while they do it. But well, we have talked about that yeah. story before, so it's not really spoilers. We do meet some of the first examples of the named feats that Cúchulán is so famous for. And the named weapons. And the named weapons, absolutely. And in later stories, there are much longer lists of those feats. In Flethrickwin, for one thing, there are great him, lists of those feats. We'll hear more about some of his feats in the next episode. Yes, yes, we certainly will. And how he comes by them.
I think perhaps it's the fact that Colin straddles two worlds that makes his character understandable in story terms. Yes, that sort of explains why he's there. Mm -hmm. Because he's, even though we've been talking about this recognisable toddler, he's never fully human. He's never really part of this world totally. He's more a force of nature. He's more just something that happens to you. Something like a flood or an earthquake. Or a tsunami. <laughs> or a tsunami, absolutely. Yeah. He's also quite a recognisable trickster figure. Yes. One who breaks the law, mm. cuts the Gordian knot. Yeah. Whatever's happening around it, he will change the situation and cause trouble. And get away with it, ultimately. Mm. Even and that's in element what a trickster yes. figure is there to do. Yeah, absolutely. But above all, he is by nature entirely uncontrollable. But as you said, his that convoluted journey he has into the world mm. is his birth story. Yes. It, it places him outside the natural flow of Coyre. Yes, it takes him several goes to get mm. born properly. And so, in many ways, he's what happens when Coyre, when that natural law is disregarded and abused. I mean, we've already seen this in action. We've seen how the women become abused and how the laws and the procedures around birth and around rearing a child get put to one side mm, get betrayed they do yeah those uh, betrayal is very deep yet yeah, we were expecting this yeah the very first story we're told warned us what to expect mm. the opening story of the two swineherds basically Oster and again Connacht the, mm. uh, the two swineherds and where they come mm. from although I know it's Munster yeah, in, that yeah. area, in that story the two tours have disrupted the natural flow of coir by their action and freed the swineherds from natural law yes into total anarchy and if you like the part of the consequences which they must face is Cahollan mm. he's not just the uncontrollable gift he's also the uncontrollable curse yeah that is the result of this disruption yes yeah and no wonder his kind of human shape and appearance is unstable and that's what I think the warp spasm mm. is referring to that fact that he, he never really got properly born. Yeah, and he sometimes appears as if he's about to turn inside out. Yes, yeah, the, the, the human shape is not enough he's to hold him in. It's not exactly shape-shifting. Mm, he belongs yeah. to both places at once. Yes, yeah, it, yeah. I think that's unescapable. I think or so. Inescapable, I should say. <laughs> I think so, but as we'll see, he is going to continue to break every guest that he encounters and he's going to challenge and overthrow and disregard the law of both worlds. And we'll uh, hear more about it in the next episode. We certainly will when he goes and gets some training from some very interesting women. And maybe even gets to meet his wife. Well, we shall see. Till next time. Thank you for listening to Agalith Manegas Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and is author of Bolacorn Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com. <laughs>